Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're doing well, that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show. We have two exciting authors stopping by today. A little bit later on, Nita Prose joins me. She's the author of The Maid, a number one New York Times bestseller and a Good Morning America book club pick. Nominated for an Edgar Award and winner of the Ned Kelly Award for International Crime Fiction and a Goodreads Choice Award, The Maid has been published in more than 40 countries and sold over 1 million copies worldwide. Today we'll talk about her new book, it's called The Mystery Guest. And these are cool books set in fancy hotels where a maid kind of does the sleuthing, like murder she wrote, but at the Chelsea Hotel, that kind of thing. That's a little bit later on. First, though, help me welcome the award-winning former Toronto Star journalist Morgan Campbell. His new memoir, My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines and the Battles That Made Us, offers a history of his family's multi-generational battles, a coming-of-age story, and a powerful reckoning with what it means to be black in Canada when you have strong American roots. It's a fascinating book, and he's a fascinating guy. Here's Morgan Campbell, who joined me via Zoom. As a journalist, you get trained to avoid using the word I, generally speaking, in mm -hmm. your writing. But here you're asking a big question. You're asking, who am I? <laughs> so yeah. tell me about this shift, then, in moving from one form to the memoir form. Yeah, it was difficult, because as a journalist especially doing the type of work that I like doing in the sense that, you know, people know me as a feature writer and someone who not only can write, but can uh, research and interview and observe and get people to say things that they might not otherwise think they were going to say or might not otherwise have been comfortable saying, get, make people comfortable with you so they can reveal things about themselves yeah. that you can then put out in a story. Um, and after a while, I'm not going to say it was easy, but I was used to doing that with other people, but it was a different task doing that with myself, being honest with myself, uh, being fearless, but also vulnerable um, on the page. It is a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, like the other skills, though, they still come into play, like how to turn a phrase, uh, observation, uh, I, I love your way with detail here. In the, <laughs> okay. And that is that comes from your journalism practice and from uh, maybe just, you know, your general life. You notice things. And my favorite moments in movies yeah. are all about scenes where uh, it seems like nothing much is happening, but yes. there'll be one line or a look or something that tells you everything you need to know about the situation <laughs> or the character or whatever it is. And yes. as I was reading this, I thought of Pete, who yeah, my uh, dad, yeah, who hated hated the smell of Kentucky bourbon. Yes, it's sick. And you don't really need any more than that because you know that it's the kind of bourbon that his father drank. And yep. all of a sudden, it tells you it paints that picture. But it's such a beautiful little detail. Yeah, and so one of there are a lot of things I was trying to accomplish with this book and the way I wanted to put it together and. One of the things I really wanted to do, because I tried to sit down and write this as one straight narrative and it nearly broke my brain. Yeah. And so I, I broke it down into like chapters, sort of like album songs in an album, mm. um, but also really wanted to just, instead of a painting, have like a mosaic, right? And build this story just on the steady accretion of these details. 
because these details I include, I could have included in any order, but I included them in the order I included them uh, on purpose. So this thing about my dad hating the smell of uh, Kentucky bourbon, uh, you know, and I, he mentioned that like in passing to someone. And he said, because his dad drank it. Now, that detail could have come in almost any chapter, right? Could have come in the chapter where it's my dad and I rolling through Chicago talking about his dad. But I chose to use that to foreshadow. My dad smells the Kentucky bourbon. He hates the smell of Kentucky bourbon. Why does he hate the Kentucky bourbon? Uh, I mentioned why he does. And if I'd left it there, you know, the reader would have been unfulfilled. But there's a whole chapter later on that explores the idea that I bring up in that chapter. But yeah, I did try to pay attention to detail because I want to build this story on details. Well, and the details are the thing that brings it to life, right? And that, for me anyway, was just so uh, kind of vibrant. You know, it was so, and because it's not like he didn't drink. He drank beer. He would drink right. things. <laughs> yeah. It was just this one very specific thing that, that you know, brought back flashbacks for him, which, you know, were troubling to him. So it's it's a great it's a great little moment that feels to me like a huge moment when when your eye scans across it in the book. Right. It, it's uh, well, and the same thing about my mom, you know, walking around with uh, a wooden spoon in her purse. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case she had to light one of us up when we were out shopping, we started acting up. Right. Like if you talk to anyone that knows me, you talk to my sisters, you say, tell the story of growing up with my mom. You have to mention the wooden spoon at some point. It's just a question of when. Right, so that right. one I left till, you know, later in, in the in the book. You're listening to Morgan Campbell on the Richard Krauss Show. His new memoir, My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines and the Battles That Made Us, is available now wherever fine books are sold. What kind of research do you do or do you do any? I mean, memoirs are based on memory, but they're also uh, involving there's extended family that we're talking mm -hmm. about here. It's not just simply your story. It's the story of a lot of people. So do you do you have to do a lot of digging? Sort of. Um, so a lot of these stories are like family stories, but you, you do have to kind of cross-reference them with older people, especially the stuff that happened before I was born. I got to cross-reference a lot of that stuff with my mom and my aunt. Um, you know, I did have to do some research in terms of just details, you know, because there's a, sometimes there's things you think you remember, um, and then you have to double check it to see if it actually happened that way or if that's just uh, your memory. You know, the tricky thing here is that, you know, I come from a family of very opinionated people and we all have the way we think things should be, the way they think, we've, the way we think things were, we, the way we think things went down, the way we think things should go down. So the danger here is like involving them too much along too much of the process is you you open yourself up to every single person in the family trying to get you to write the book that they would have written, which wouldn't fly. Um, you know, but some of these things and some of these details I learned in the cross referencing um, in the sense that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And hopefully, you know, your audience will go out and buy this book and read it, but like and there'll be context for what I'm about to say, but like when the mob enforcer offers to kill my grandparents 
next door neighbors. I was going to ask you about that. So <laughs> yeah. Claude Jones is the character, right? He is yeah. for me, such a vividly painted character here. And when I read that part, I thought, I don't know whether this is true or not, but it kind of didn't matter to me because it spoke to who he was. It spoke to this colorful life that he had led. Yeah, no. would be true. That part was that part was true. I think the only question is the extent to which the the mob enforcer meant it. Right. But that happened. Um, but so when he would tell that story, it was just he would just always fast forward to the punchline, and it really wasn't important who the mob enforcer was. He didn't even tell us it was a mob enforcer. He was just it was he would just tell the story of a mob guy. But I ran it by my mom. My mom was like, "No, that's not. That wasn't just a mob guy." That was a mob enforcer. And it wasn't just the mob enforcer, a mob enforcer. It was the premier mob enforcer of Chicago of that era, Marshall Caifano. If you Google him, you will find all kinds of stuff. Uh, none of it very flattering. This man had a reputation. So if he says, hey, I'll kill your next door neighbors, he might very well mean it. And even if he's joking about it, like what a thing to joke about. It's both, it's macabre, just in a different way. What were the conversations with your family like as you were starting this to write this book? They were supportive and curious and, you know, for my mom and like my aunt and my sisters, they get it in the sense that I'm writing these stories from my point of view. You know, I, you know, I had to, you know, write this email to my family the other day just to remind them and warn them that this is all stuff from my point of view. Your points of view on these fights might be different, and that's okay. I'm not trying to relitigate any of this stuff because the one thing I want people to take away from this, one of the one things, one of the things I want people to take from, away from this, is that like in these family fights, nobody wins. There is no winner, right? All you do is waste time and waste energy. Um, you know, and my, you know, my mom and my aunt got it. Like, and if you know, if they had written the story, there would be a lot more of their mother, um, but there wasn't a lot of my grandmother, my mom's on. Um, because the big characters in this book besides me are, you know, my mom, my dad, my dad's mom and my mom's dad. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when, when, when they, when, as the book circulates through my family and people get to reading it, you know, if they have questions, they can ask me, but I've already explained to them like where I was coming from. But you didn't show it to them first. No, no. Um, like I said, I did some fact checking, yep. but I can't. It's very much like with journalism. I can't let you read the whole draft of the story before we can fact check. But again, I, I did not want to get into the situation where everybody's trying to uh, maneuver me into writing the book that they would have written. You're listening to Morgan Campbell on The Richard Krause Show. His new book, My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines and the Battles That Made Us, is available wherever fine books are sold. Later on in the show, New York Times bestselling author Nita Prose joins me to talk about her new book, The Mystery Guest. It's a follow-up to her phenomenally successful first book, The Maid. It follows the adventures of Molly Gray, a maid at the Regency Grand Hotel who launches an investigation of her own into the death of an acclaimed author who died in one of the hotel's rooms. We'll learn how a mummified rat was part of the unusual inspiration for this book, and much, much more. First, though, we'll spend a bit more time with Morgan Campbell. In part two of my conversation, he'll tell me what he learned about his family from writing this memoir. A couple of things that I put in the proposal was that what I wanted to wrestle with, and this is before I, I wrote it, so I didn't know how this stuff would turn out, right. is writing about learning how to love people you don't necessarily like. 
What was revealed to you then about your past and your family as you sat down to think about this differently? This is something clearly ideas like this and the details have been kicking around in your head for a long time, but you are, you're writing it down now and you're figuring out the structure of the book and you're putting it all together. So you're probably thinking about it in a, in a different way. Was there something remarkable revealed to you that, that hadn't occurred to you before you put pen to paper? No, I wouldn't say that there was like one single revelation, you know, one epiphany. Um, one of a couple of things that I put in the proposal was that what I wanted to wrestle with, and this is before I, I wrote it, so I didn't know how this stuff would turn out, right. is writing about learning how to love people you don't necessarily like. Right. Um, and that was something I had to uh, work through mm-hmm. as I wrote the book, you know, with my dad's. <laughs> mom is listen you read about her she was a lot man and it was (laughs) it was tough to arrive at some empathy for her you know but i did and i do now my mom's gonna read that and still gonna say whatever empathy you feel for her take mine too because i don't feel it yeah it's not shared by the rest of the family (laughs) (laughs) exactly whereas you know with my mom's dad it's it's a little bit very similar but different Mm -hmm. right he and I had a friendly relationship, but again, like by the time I was old enough to notice these things, it was very obvious that he was the common denominator in every single big blow up. And so you have to kind of reckon with that. And also with his career as a musician, um, you know, this idea that he was not like a more famous musician than he was. And, you know, my mom would sometimes talk about stuff with that stuff with regret, you know, but at the same time, this was a jazz musician who came along like when that genre was changing and he still managed to raise four kids playing jazz piano, never needed a, a And he a did cool job. stuff. I yeah, mean, he never needed a day job. So the Playboy Club in Chicago, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's super cool, right? So, yeah. And so, yeah, I wish he had recorded more. There's a lot of stuff I wish, but, you know, you can't say his career wasn't a success because, again, he put Canada like on the map for our whole family. And, um, you know, if he had been a more successful musician, his life would be different and my life would be different if 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 I even come to exist at all. Right. Because so much of what came after him came because he made the decision he made to move from Chicago to Toronto. Yeah. To move to Canada. And I think that the, one of the interesting or one of the many interesting things about the book is um, you, your family arrives in Canada and realizes that there are uh, issues with race relations here, just as there were in the United States that you had yes. left behind and the conversations that they have to have. And so tell me a little bit about that, I guess, without giving the book Listen, away. Just one thing the- I'm not scared of is spoilers because I'm a sports writer <laughs> and I've spent my career like writing about events that you can see on TV. Right. And if you're that interested, you're still going to read, right. right? How many of us have watched a game 
on Saturday night and then right after the game ended, watch the highlights and right after the highlights, go to sleep, wake up and read about it like if, the next morning. If, you, if you're into the story, you're into the story. You don't care if you know the ending. You're listening to Morgan Campbell on The Richard Krause Show. My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines and the Battles That Made Us is available now wherever you buy fine books. Um, as far as my parents are concerned, yeah, they followed my grandparents. My grandparents moved here in 1966. My, grandpa- my parents came in 19... 19- 69 um, because they wanted to have more than one child and they did not feel comfortable having more than one child in in the US because they lived in Chicago but they also knew that like you could leave Chicago but the issues that made Chicago what it was also existed any other city you could name mm-hmm. big american city you're going to deal with segregation systemic racism maybe interpersonal racism um if segregation doesn't wall you off from other races completely. Uh, but they also moved here knowing that like they were gonna be minorities in a country that's mostly white. So they weren't naive to the fact that if you are black in a country where most of the people are white, you're still going to face racism. Um, but their lives just didn't feel as circumscribed by systemic racism here in Canada as it did in the United States. And for them, that was the big difference. And again, you know, the other shift for my parents was coming to Canada and dealing with different types of black people. In the US and Chicago, especially like the overwhelming majority of black people you dealt with were other African Americans whose families were like yours, whose parents or grandparents, for my mom's generation, most of their parents had come up from the South, come from Arkansas, Mississippi, uh, Texas, Alabama, places like that. And now they're here dealing with a lot of people who are recent immigrants from the Caribbean. And I know for my mom, it was a big shock because uh, to the extent that she would meet black people, uh, Jamaicans in Chicago growing up, the Jamaicans she met growing up in Chicago did not really identify with black Americans and wanted white people to know that they were not them, they were not common. And now she gets here and it's all these Jamaicans kind of calling the shots on who's black and who isn't. And she's never experienced this before because she's like, where I came from, you didn't want to you didn't want to be part of the club. Now you guys are guarding the door telling me I'm not part of the club. <laughs> what is this? So these were some pretty big shifts they had to deal with. In the book, you uh, say that when you lived in Windsor, you were uh, living in Windsor, working in Detroit, going yes. back and forth across the border, interning at a newspaper over there. Yeah, at the Detroit News, yep. Yeah, and after you had lived in Toronto for some time, and you say, Torontonians wanted to know my island. Yes. And the, the Windsor... Windsorites. Rights, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Windsorites, that's the word. my last name because yeah. it's a different way of identification, I guess. Absolutely. And so, you know, and I've disappointed so many people in Toronto by just not having an island. Mm-hmm. People would ask me, where, where are you from, Mississauga? Where are your parents from? Chicago. Where are their parents from? Chicago. Where are their parents from? Name a state. Arkansas, yeah. Texas, Louisiana, South Carolina, on down the line. And they we keep going back generation by generation by generation because people just want me to at some point say Trinidad yeah. or <laughs> Jamaica yeah. or whatever. And that is, you know, in my family, that's not the case. Um, and so now with the woman in Windsor at the very beginning of the book, like, yeah, she had profiled me and I don't blame her. And I find myself doing this to people now. Like you see a young person and something about that young person is a clue to you that you might know their folks 
Right. So you start because asking questions. In the book, you're like 20 or 21 or something. And she's yeah, about, I'm, t- I'm 22. Like yeah. That. And she's 50 or something like that. Yeah. Five or 50, right? And the thing was, and she asked me my last name. I said Campbell. And she said, I don't know any Campbells. But the thing was, we did know some people in common because she had grown up with some of my uncle's friends who now lived in Toronto. So like her radar was not that off. <laughs> You've been listening to Morgan Campbell on The Richard Krause Show. His new book, My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines and the Battles That Made Us, is available now wherever fine books are sold. My guest in this segment is Nita Prose, author of The Maid, a number one New York Times bestseller and a Good Morning America book club pick. Nominated for an Edgar Award and winner of the Ned Kelly Award for International Crime Fiction and a Goodreads Choice Award, The Maid has been published in more than 40 countries and has sold over 1 million copies worldwide. She joins me to talk about her new book, The Mystery Guest. It's a follow-up to the phenomenally successful first novel, and it follows the adventures of Molly Gray, a maid at the Regency Grand Hotel who launches an investigation of her own into the death of an acclaimed author who died in one of the hotel's rooms. Nita talks about the unusual inspiration for her new book, the upcoming Hollywood adaptation, and how being a book editor for 20 years before writing her first novel made her think like a writer. Tell me what it was like to have such a a huge success with the debut novel. Well, I don't think anyone could be more surprised than I was. Let's just say, you know, I've worked in publishing for so long, Mm. so I know the pitfalls. I know that this doesn't happen often, and it was not what I expected. I expected, Richard, for my friends and family to read the book, lie and tell me that it was great, and that would be the end of it. (laughs) But in the end, it seems I have a readership, and I am so grateful for everyone for for their uh, enormous support. And what do you think it is? What caught people's imagination? You know, I think it's Molly as a character. You know, Mm. she's unusual, and yet she's different and the same as all of us in fundamental ways. We've all had that feeling of struggling with belonging, a feeling like the wallflower or being left out in a social situation. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, those scars and traumas leave their mark in us and we don't forget them. So I think by positing um, that character in a way that, that, that had those difficulties, we can all relate, you know, to that. Well, there's more of us on the outside of the circle than there are on the inside. So I think we always have to keep that in mind when we're feeling a little excluded or feeling left out. I think you're absolutely right. So when people ask you, how long did it take you to write uh, the first book in this series, The Maid, you have two answers. One is 20 years and six months, and the other one is six months. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, and then we'll we'll talk about the new book after that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do have the two answers. So uh, often I tell people, you know, it took me over 20 years to write the book because I have been an editor for that long, and I have had the great good fortune of working with all kinds of writers on different genres and helping them do their best work and bring their author, bring their books to publication. And I've learned so much because uh, of that work that those authors have allowed me to do. So that when I came to my first draft, actually, it took me 
a shorter time than usual, I would say, hmm. to to write that draft. It took me seven months, but <laughs> only because I had 20 years of the best writing school you could have ever had. And that's my work in publishing. Are there sort of specific things that you took away from that that you could share with people who maybe have a thought of writing a book and just don't know how to begin or a common pitfall to avoid? I would say that, you know, a lot of writers get stopped by a lack of inspiration. Mm. And, you know, when that inspiration disappears, you then have to, to re return to narrative form. You have to challenge yourself with questions about what's going wrong and how to keep that activity internal, intrinsic or external, big car crash, whatever it is <laughs> happening on the page that rivets your reader. You're listening to Nita Prose on The Richard Krause Show. Her new novel, The Mystery Guest, is available now wherever you buy fine books. When I, when I write, even now to this day, it's almost as though there's a little mini me sitting on my shoulder, peppering me with questions like, is this pace the right pace? Is your... Does your style match the character? You know, um, is something happening? I'm getting bored, Nita. Make something <laughs> happen. And, you know, that little editorial voice is actually a really great gift. It's an angel and a devil at the very same time. <laughs> well, Douglas Copeland told me one time that he, uh, when he's in the midst of a book, it's like his characters are sitting on his shoulders, whispering in his ears what they want him to make them do. I think that's very, very true. So he's got his characters and I have myself and my own editors on my shoulders. <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about coming up with the second adventure for uh, Molly, uh, because the first one was so successful and that is either going to be extremely exp inspiring or extremely daunting. They're like, I did it once. Now I have to do it again. Yeah, well, it was just ever so slightly daunting and frankly, it almost ruined me. But I got through it. And, you know, it's it's a really, really hard thing for a writer when you make a beloved character and then you are beholden to it in a lot of ways. And what really frightened me was if I did try to write a sequel, which I'd never planned to do, could I give readers more of Molly without giving them less? And that was the big question for me. So I tried and I vowed to myself and to my publishers that no one would see my attempt unless I thought, you know, it was giving more rather than less. And fortunately, I was struck with, you know, a few bits of good fortune. You know, every once in a while, a writer will get that lightning bolt, that burst of inspiration. You never know when it's going to come. The only thing certain about it is it will disappear at some point. But for me, it happened while I was on tour for The Maid, and I was outside of Brighton in a little town called Lewes, mm. and I was at a museum there, and it was a castle museum. So there's a castle in the museum. And I went to the museum after visiting the castle, and there was this most unusual display case. In this little glass case was the mummified body of a rat and a single silver spoon. And I looked at this amongst all these other gorgeous old antique objects. And I'm like, what on earth is it? And I read the little placard. And as it turns out, this was a commemorating sort of um, display for a maid who long ago had worked in the castle. And she had been unceremoniously dismissed after having been accused of stealing a piece of silverware. So she's kicked out of the castle. You know, nobody knows what happened to her, except that years later, when they renovated the castle, this happened in the 17th century, a long time ago, they open up the walls and they find a rat's nest. And in that rat's nest 
was this mummified body of the rat and the single silver spoon. And for some reason, Richard, that little nugget, that true to life factual story just opened up my imagination. It was a parable and a cautionary tale at the same time. And, you know, one of my fundamental characters, Gran, I could almost hear her voice in my head. Be careful what you assume. Nothing is ever as it seems. And the past will never stay buried forever. And with that little nugget, suddenly the whole world of the mystery guest opened up. And I suddenly realized there's a whole terrain of Molly and Gran's past that can be discovered and if Molly were solving a mystery in the present tense, but she had to return to the past in order to solve that mystery, suddenly I had a runway for a novel. Well, it's also a great example of how inspiration can really come from anywhere and anything. So if you are working on something, or if, even if you're not, keep your eyes open. If you had you not been open to it, the second book may not have happened in the way that it did. I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, any creative has to be open to that force that is going to mm. let the mind play and listen to those things. You know, when they don't leave your subconscious, there's a reason why it's sitting there. It's asking for something, right? And you uh, tell much of the story here in flashbacks to uh, Molly's childhood. Um, tell me a little bit about writing that and weaving those two together. Well, I love that structure in novels. It's a tried and true structure. And what I really love about it is it's it's a way to involve a character in a quest. Mm. And the past in a novel with a structure like that really exists for only one reason, to move the character along in the present. So the character, much like real life, let me add, <laughs> is moving along in the present tense, gets stuck, needs to return to memory, return to the past, in order to rescue a piece of information, a detail, a memory, a context that then allows them to move forward in the present. And Molly experiences that very profoundly in The Mystery Guest. She must return to a time when she was 10 years old and she, you know, enters this luxurious, if somewhat creepy mansion owned by a famous writer, J.D. Grimthorpe, and she encounters him there. Um, in the past tense, not really knowing much about them. And they form a very strange uh, little relationship. And of course, that echoes into the present tense when the same author, J.D. Grimthorpe, dies on the tea room floor of the Regency Grand at the opening of the book. There is no spoiler there. That is, you know, he dies right in chapter one. You have great names for your characters. Tell me about coming up with the names. Well, isn't it fun to it name? It is fun. It is so fun to name. Um, and, you know, I had a lot of fun uh, with that in, in The Maid, particularly. You know, I wanted to write a classical mystery a la Agatha Christie, but innovate it and make it contemporary at the same time. And I don't know if you ever played the game Clue as a child, did you? Of course. Yeah, yeah of course, so, you yeah. know. Um, you know, Mrs. Peacock in mm. the ballroom with a wrench or whatever. Yep. What I loved about that game is it really is the essence of a whodunit in three simple uh, things, you know, or in, in a character name and a couple, uh, a place and, and a weapon. And so I tried to bring in some of the flavor of that in my naming conventions in the, in the first book, particularly where colors really do mean something. We do have Mr. Black who's died and Molly Gray, who's caught between black and white all the time and must in the course of her growth and her development must learn to see shades of gray, which I, of course, at the beginning of the book, She's not so good at. 
And her name is Molly. Have you heard from the Molly made people yet? As a, is there going to be a possible collaboration between you? <laughs> if they do collaborate, I have a house that I would really love clean because unlike Molly, I have really no interest in that. You know, my house is only moderately clean. So anytime Molly made people, if you're listening, come on to my house, you know, free advertising. No, they have not reached out yet, but I, I remain ever hopeful. Yeah. Well, wait till this book sells a million copies and then you'll, you'll be hearing from them. I'm sure. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the backdrop of these books, which is the, the back area of a hotel, which is something, even if you travel a lot, uh, you're used to uh, the way hotels work from the front end. It's a much different thing. It's a beehive behind the uh, scenes. Tell me a little bit about painting those portraits. You know, I'm fascinated by hotels and you're absolutely right that a hotel is a place that has two faces. It's a Gemini. There is the world that the guest sees mm -hmm. and the guest is, you know, the highest on on in the ranking, the highest hierarchical being who walks in the door and the whole facade um, exists for the guest's comfort and delight. And yet it's kind of like that swan, you know, who's gracefully moving across the water. And yet we never get to see those legs pumping beneath. Yeah. Oh, no, we don't. <laughs> now, something that I had to do in order to find details and to really understand what it would be like on the other side, because I've never actually worked in a hotel myself. You're listening to Nita Prose on The Richard Krause Show. Her book, The Mystery Guest, is available now wherever you buy fine books. Was visit and stock hotels. And do not ask me to name the ones that I visited um, because I, I live in perpetual fear that I'll never be allowed back in them. But what I did was enter them wearing a very neutral outfit, you know, most often black pants and a white top, you know, a white shirt. And I would mimic the look of the employee and see how many doors I could open and how far I could get just on the basis wow. of a comportment <laughs> and a very simple quote unquote uniform. And actually I learned so much from doing that. I learned just how invisible you are to most mm. guests until they need you. And I also learned little transportable details that I could have, I never would have noticed unless I did that exercise, such as I remember walking down the hallways, you know, mid morning and noticing those discarded room service trays outside of people's rooms, you know, with half eaten toasts and little pots of jam. And, you know, and I thought, you know, if you were hungry, if you were somebody like Molly, who's really existing on the fringes, having to pay rent on her own for the first time, she's struggling financially, emotionally, psychologically. And to see this waste in the hallway, to be tempted by the food when you are so hungry, what would that do to somebody like her, you know? And in in the books, in particular in the first book, she has to find a new moral compass. She, she does not believe you should steal. And yet she needs the food, the sustenance so badly that she can, she finds a way to excuse that behavior as waste not want not, mm -hmm. as, you know, doing a service because otherwise the food would go to waste and chomping it down, taking it for herself, right? Hotel culture, uh, I find fascinating. People feel comfortable in hotel rooms. People do things in hotel rooms that they probably wouldn't do, uh, certainly at home. Uh, and and often they 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 do these things because, just as you said, they treat the employees as being kind of invisible. 
and just oh, someone else will clean that up. Some I've I've done something terrible in there, but someone else and it'll be gone by the time I get back. And they don't think about the people that actually have to take care of it. I think that's absolutely true. And it's something that we're all kind of guilty of. And mm -hmm. I myself got the idea for the first book because I was guilty of that. You know, it happened a few years ago when I was at a hotel in London. And I went out for a meeting, came back and surprised the roommate who was cleaning my room. And like the pathetic slob that I am, I had left my tangled, disgusting, sweaty track pants on the bed in my rush to change after having gone for a run in the morning. Um, and, you know, she was trying to fold those up neatly. I surprised her when I came in and we both looked at each other and said nothing. And I just thought, oh, my God, it is such an intimate and invisible job to be a roommate. She'd been cleaning my room for days. Yeah. She knew everything about me, everything. And I knew nothing about her. You know, that level of invisibility to live like that every day, to work like that every day, it really made an impact on me. And, and for some reason, again, that little tidbit, that little interaction became fuel for a novel. And again, you never know where the inspiration is going to come from. Exactly. That's really fascinating it, to me. It it is, and it's so uncontrolled at the same time. Like, I, mm. can I have another one, please? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, do you, oh great gods of creativity! <laughs> it does not work that way, right? Is this becoming a movie? Do I hear that Florence Pugh is is attached to this? Indeed, it is. Um, Universal wow. Pictures uh, has optioned the the film rights, and you know there was this little strike in Hollywood for just I, a I, while. I heard something about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know things were at a standstill, obviously for very good reasons, but things are picking up again, and I hope, hope, hope we'll have some wonderful news to to share very shortly. Raymond Chandler sitting in his office one day and someone came over to visit and they had made books, uh, movies out of most of his books at that point, the Sam Spade books. And uh, someone said, how do you feel about Hollywood ruining all your books? And he goes, my books aren't ruined. They're right up there on the shelf. They're fine. Absolutely. The books are fine. Absolutely right. And that's how I see it too. I mean, yeah. people are always asking writers, like, aren't you worried they're going to ruin your baby? They're going to kill it. And I don't, I don't see it that way at all. Yep. You know, it, maybe the film won't be good. Maybe it will be good. We don't know. But it's a different work of art. It is inspired by what I wrote. And it will be, by definition, completely different. That was Nita Prose on The Richard Krause Show. Her book, The Mystery Guest, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Big thanks to Nita. Also, a big thanks to Morgan Campbell. Check out his memoir, My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines and the Battles That Made Us. Big thanks to Morgan. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon.